Welcome to Complexified, where religion and politics collide with real life. We're your hosts, Amanda Henderson and Lex Dunbar. Each episode, we talk with activists and thinkers about the biggest issues of our time. Abortion, racism, climate change, Christian nationalism, and so much more. We're asking how our understanding of God shapes the way we navigate change, personally and politically. We will always approach these conversations with compassion and curiosity and humor. If you are a first-time listener, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts and be sure to leave us a review and share with your friends and become a part of this movement to let go of simple answers and to embrace the complexity of real life. Today, we are so excited to have back one of our favorite guests, Ian Silveri. Ian is a political strategist, a dad, one of my favorite people to banter with, and the first gentleman of the 7th Congressional District, a new title for him after his wife, Brittany, was elected to Congress from Colorado this past November. Ian, we are so grateful to have you back. I'm so happy to be back. Thank you for having me again. There's like two things in the intro that like sparked something in my head, right? Go for it. You know, here we talk about where politics and religion collide. It's like the opposite of like what they tell you at the bar, right? Yeah. You can't like, these these are like forbidden topics. Yeah. And yet your entire podcast is about it. So (laughs) that is what we do. We are your favorite party guests. The ones who talk about (laughs) all the things that you're not supposed to talk about. Your uncle and get you uninvited to the next Thanksgiving. That's our plan. That's that's our plan. (laughs) Get kicked out of everywhere. (laughs) So Ian, this season we are talking about change. And Lex, do you want to share the quote from Octavia Butler that is driving our questions this episode or this season rather? Yeah. So we're using this quote from Octavia E. Butler's The Parable of the Sower in which she says, all that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. So Ian, I want to start off with our first question and really this last part of the only lasting truth it's change. Um, I'm interested in how does that resonate with you when we think of our political systems? Oh my gosh. That really reminds me of this like concept I learned in, in Buddhism. I, I think I'm pronouncing this correctly. It's anika. It's like the idea of impermanence, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that like everything always changes all the time. And like, that's just the nature of the universe, right? Things like Big Bang, boom, things start moving very quickly apart from each other. Everything's changing every second, every millisecond, every microsecond. Um, We're all getting older, whether we want to admit it or not. Some of us wear it better than others. I'm on the others side, (laughs) I think. Um, And like, you know, you get older, your hair, in my case, stops growing at certain parts. Uh, I have a three-year-old now. So he was like, it feels like seconds ago, Mm -hmm. he was this tiny little helpless nugget. And now he's just like, dude running around my house, Hulk smashing my couch all the time. (laughs) And it's like, that's just so rapid. So Lex, to your question about politics, like, I think 
systems are put in place, generally speaking, to resist change, right? And the American system of government, especially, and we can go into the details on how I think that was very much intentional in many ways. Um, status quo preservation is sort of like a, a aim of the privileged in most places and cases. So like you want to design a system that works pretty slowly mm-hmm. if you're the one in power. Hmm. And generally speaking, if you're designing the system, you're the one in power. So incrementalism is sort of like the coin of the realm in, I think, American politics and revolutions tend not to happen. We had that one that one time and you had like sort of social revolutions here and there. Um, But in terms of like the actual nuts and bolts of how the government works, if it works, when it works um, on every level from your water board and your school board to the to the United States House of Representatives. Right. These systems are designed to very slowly change, if at all. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah, let's talk about that tension with like how the systems are designed to maintain order or the status quo. While also, I mean, you did name that there are elements that are built in our systems to be able to navigate change. So how do those two interact, the, the, the aspects of our systems that are built to resist change and the aspects of our systems that are built to support navigating change? So let's do like a really rapid fire schoolhouse rock. Thing. Do it, I'm do not it. Gonna sing, yeah. But like then we'll get so like how does a how does a bill become a law? Like how does an idea become policy, right? So like just take like the state legislature in Colorado as like the the arena through which we will process this question. So I, Ian Silveri, have an idea. I think that it should be um I can't come up with an idea right now. That's really funny weird because that's like all i do all the time um Uh, let's say let's say you want to change let's say you want to free housing free housing forever all right great let's do that yep so actually terrific example so let's let's do some kind of housing policy right i have this idea for free housing uh i won't give you the details right now but in order to get it from idea to policy from concept to law you have to get the idea written down. So first we have to come up with the whole idea. Then we have to turn it into legislative language that requires somebody in the basement of the state capitol who's a licensed attorney to draft the bill. So mm-hmm. they write it down on a piece of paper and legalese figure out which statute, which section of which statute it fits into and how it would work. That idea then has to go to a committee. That committee has to pass it probably to another committee if we're talking about free housing. So it has to go from one like concept committee to a fiscal committee like appropriations or finance. Then once that bill gets out of that committee, it has to go to the full floor of the state house. There's a whole vote and a whole debate. Then it happens again, just to make sure. There's also an amendment process throughout both of those hearings or second reading where you have this big debate and people just kind of like go off on each other and and try and improve the bill or in many cases, try and kill the bill. Then that process resolves itself. And if that thing, if that, if the bill moves past that process by getting 33 votes or more, then it goes to a full vote of the house, which is a recorded vote. If that vote gets 33 votes or more, it goes to the Senate. The entire thing then starts all over again with a different (laughs) group of people and a different wing of the Capitol committee, committee, floor, floor. And if it passes through all of those gauntlets, it goes to the governor's desk where he or she gets to sign or veto the bill. Yes. Then the people who didn't want the law to pass can sue. They can go to court. And then the court can either uphold or overturn or change parts of the law. So this is a system that is designed to be slow on purpose. It is designed to stop things from happening Hmm. because at any point in that process, you can get the big guillotine, game over, do not pass, go, do not collect $200, Mm -hmm. go to the front of the line, start again next year. And that happens all the time. 
And then there's forces in between that with a lot of money and interest uh, exerting influence at different each of the points in that process as well. And generally speaking, the most powerful interests are the ones who want to preserve the world the way it is right now. Mm -hmm. Or change the world to gain an even further advantage, right? So that's a different way. You can like pass a law and halt progress even further, right? Think about like all the anti-LGBTQ laws that are happening all over the country, all the anti-abortion laws that are happening all over the country, right? Mm -hmm. That's a legislative process victory for the proponents, right? Where they're able to use the levers of power and the incremental system in front of them to then prevent other people from changing things further, right? Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Yikes. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) On purpose. It is designed this way on purpose. It is supposed to be slow. And And it's like we know that, but I think hearing it so clearly like that just really frustrates me. (laughs) I understand. And there's some merit to that, right? Like there is. There is some objective merit to not wanting every single legislative session to completely rewrite every law on the books, right? There is, there is value and there is merit in a managed degree of change. However, when there are so many needs and so much unfairness and things are so obviously rigged for certain people and against many, many, many other people, that very cute, intentional, philosophically interesting process becomes a massively horrible, unethical barrier mm-hmm. to equity, equality, and just trying to make things better for a larger number of people, right? Yeah. What underlying understanding of change was held when our political systems in the United States were being built? Well, it's I mean, it's it's a it's a great question. And I think contextualizing it is important because like these folks had a lot of cognitive dissonance. Right. You talk about the founders. Right. Who wrote a lot about freedom and a lot about rights and a lot about liberty and a lot about faith. And then they like enslaved other human beings and women couldn't vote. So it's like. There's a lot of disconnects, right? Yeah. Yeah, And like you could make a pretty straight face argument that like the founders had an aspirational vision for the country that was disconnected from the sort of status quo at the time. I don't think that's a totally unfair argument. I do think there's a shit ton of hypocrisy uh, woven throughout the entire thing. And like just like taking the plain words that like a guy like Thomas Jefferson wrote about freedom and liberty and then comparing it with the fact that he like raped his slaves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pretty hard yeah, to reconcile yeah, those so two many, things, right? Yeah. <laughs> so many. So like, accept that there are many hypocrisies and flaws in the design of the system. Let's just, yes. I think, internalize that part. Then I think you have to say, like, where were they? And, you know, you, Amanda, and Lex probably as well have maybe more to say about this than even I do. But, like, it's the it's the whole, like, Christian monotheistic immutability of God, right? Mm-hmm. It's the whole hierarchy of and ordering of beings in the universe where it's like, God above man, man above woman, right? Yes. Humans above animals, animals mm-hmm. above everything. Right. So it's like there's that hierarchical ordering that happens in sort of Western white Enlightenment. Christianity. Mm-hmm. And and I think that the DNA of that to resist change is present very much in the political system that was created. Like there's also like an anti-monarchical sort of part of it too, where like the king could sort of on a whim dictate this or that or the other thing. So there are some like pretty logical reasons why you would want a democratic process to be kind of slow. And the sort of most, I think, I don't know, the most cheerleader argument for incremental political change in a democratic process is like, 
You want as many people weighing into the conversation as possible. Therefore, you want the process to be slow. And when you change a law, you really want to do it right. So you have all these parts of the process where in which things can get changed or stopped or reconfigured or paused or rerouted. And therefore, if something actually does make it all the way from concept to law and is upheld by the courts, if it's challenged, then it's a really good one because mm -hmm. it went through all this process and survived all these all these parts in which it could have died. Right. Like in theory, that sounds good. Sure. Except that like people are actually dying, right? And like all the time, we like waiting for all of this, right? Like in the midst of all of that waiting, thousands and thousands and thousands of people are dying. And so then, like, that's the thing that just keeps coming up in my mind. It's like people are dying. <laughs> like, what do we do with that? And it's not like you're waiting for like, a month or a year or a decade you're waiting for generations generations right? it's like, like when my grand my grandparents are holocaust survivors i think we talked about this last time i was on the show mm -hmm. and it's like yeah it's really interesting and intellectually stimulating to talk about the incrementalism of government or whatever but like when people are being enslaved and murdered like maybe we right. should not be so curious and stop that shit and like make things happen that are better for people but like on the other hand my my business partner, he's Iranian, and his family left the country after or during the revolution. Um, mm -hmm. And he reminds me a lot because we talk about, you know, politics and policy and change all the time that revolutions are often incredibly bad for at least one half of the people yep. involved. Right. Yeah. So it's like, yes, there are grave injustices going on all over the world and all over this country and in every state in this country right now, for sure. And agreeing, consenting, sitting together and and arguing it out and coming up with a process by which we can make change to Lex's point seems pretty reasonable. But what do you do in the meantime with all this injustice and all this horror that's taking place all the while you're having these intellectual conversations and like policy debates, right? These are tough questions. I don't, you know, uh, Ben Franklin, I think maybe Winston Churchill, one of these guys said, you know, democracy <laughs> someone who is says a lot of nice th uh, things. Sure, sure, sure. But I think this quote has actually been misattributed to both of them at some point. So I'm huh. really not sure whoever said it. But it's like, you know, democracy is absolutely the worst form of government except for all the other ones. And like, I have a pretty hard time disagreeing with that because there are lots of really dumb ways to do this. And democracy is a pretty dumb way, but it may be the least dumb way we figured out so far. It's interesting. I, I'm really appreciating the the pushback on my instinct, which is to embrace deeper ways of navigating change, right? Because that's kind of part of who I am. I'm a change maker. I, I, I really see the idea that everything is always changing. And you're naming the danger in that, that like change isn't always positive for people, that there's a real risk. I remember those early days of the Donald Trump presidency when he was signing executive orders every Friday. A lot Friday. of things changed really fast, yeah, didn't they? Yeah, a lot of changes really fast. And you know, the ways that he was able to make executive orders just like that really counter to the way our systems were built. Uh, and so it's really helpful to remember you're helping remind me how important it is to remember that the slowness of the process is intentional to prevent really bad things from happening while we're also frustrated at how long it takes to make good things happen. Yeah, it's parentheses on both sides, right? Like it prevents you from rapidly making important and good change, but it also prevents real bad people from making rapid and terrible change. So like you kind of have to take those two things together and understand that like, while it might be frustrating, 
because systems are essentially designed to preserve a status quo, it could and maybe even should be a lot worse, <laughs> right? Like the boot should be harder on our necks than it maybe even is because of the way power just kind of concentrates itself and works in general. And the fact that you have a democratic process that kind of spreads power out throughout various channels and various levels of government. And, you know, you can talk about the merits of that one way or another. But the fact that it's that it dilutes power and doesn't hold it all inside of one entity or one individual well, I think that's probably a good idea because otherwise the existing powers would have no reason to ever let any of it go and in fact would just concentrate and accumulate more and more of it. So you you make it diffuse and you distribute it along a sort of larger surface area, but still there are levels of status quo and power preservation that occur even there. I think it's less dangerous than concentrating inside one individual. I mean, like Donald Trump's a great example of like the worst person who could possibly have or a very, very bad guy. Mm -hmm. There are worse people out there, believe yeah, it or not, probably. Um, that has way too much power concentrated. But then like you could conceive of the opposite. Like, oh my gosh, we finally elected the world's best person as president. Let's let them go take the ball and run with it. Half of us would be pretty happy with that. I think half of us might be pretty miserable with that. So right. then there's like an objectivity, subjectivity conversation that has to be had too. For me though, I think, and I do want to preface this for our listeners, Obviously, I do not speak for all black people. I am speaking for myself. What do you mean? <laughs> I speak for all Jewish dads. So what the hell, X? For all white women. Right, exactly. And I would also say black people aren't monolithic, right? And so this, these are my thoughts, viewers. Yes, yes. Um, Good caveat. But, but thinking of the concentration of power and who that lands on for me in the way that I see it. Yes, it is spread out and it is also not. It is concentrated right. mm -hmm. on blackness and that is Ooh. a global blackness, right? Yeah. And true. so I'm hearing you talk and in my mind, I'm like, well, if currently so much of the, the harmful concentration is, on, is rooted in anti-blackness and that is globally, right? If the reality of it is, is that I am in some way or another, I'm going to die under anti-blackness, whether it's because racism causes hypertension or, you know, causes heart disease or I'm actually taken out by a cop. Right. Or, or any of those things. Um, the concept of moving slow to change that falls so flat for me. Right. Because it's, it. if I'm going to die anyways. Right. Why not die starting a revolution, right? Like if, I, if I'm going to die under the weight of anti-blackness, right? Then why not go out with a little bit more hope other than just like waiting for somehow, right? For anti-blackness to be lifted, which it will never. Well, I'm not sure I have an incredibly good argument against you, so I'm not going to try. But, I, <laughs> but just to like kind of, I agree with you. I mean, I think you're right. But I think like to add maybe another step to it, you know, it, so think about like the revolution, right? Or a revolution. Like what, what does that look like? Um, who, who's involved? Who gets a say in it? Where does it happen? Is it violent? Is it peaceful? So these are all questions that you kind of have to reckon with. But let's assume that like you, Lex, are now the leader of the revolution to, you know, to, to uh, eliminate anti-blackness in America. And that takes a cultural and a social angle. And that takes a political and a policy angle. And that takes a sort of, uh, you know, neighborhood and local uh, community angle as well, mm -hmm. right? The question that I think, you know, has to be asked is like, 
are we, what are we aiming for, right? Is it the elimination of anti-blackness? Is it like a straight up anti-racist framework? Okay, let's talk about that. Who are your allies? Who are your opponents? The one thing that I always caution against when, when even incremental policy change is being put in front of people as a question is what's the backlash? Mm-hmm. And how severe is it? And does mm-hmm. it put us back behind where we started? Amanda and I worked together on this anti, we were the anti, anti-abortion um, ballot initiative in 2020? 2020. That's right. Yeah. One of the questions that we wrestled with was like, okay, we have this thing in front of us where we have to fight back against this criminal ban on many abortions, right? There are abortions later in pregnancy with no exceptions. So all these sorts of things. And one of the hard questions, and you probably remember this, that we had to yeah. weigh in this conversation was, okay, our polling tells us that if we talk about women and talk about women's rights, we're going to win this thing outright. But we are in coalition with trans people. We are in coalition with non-binary people. We are in coalition with people who don't fit into these binary genders. So are we going to... And then we test it and we say, what if we say people with uteruses? What if we say people who are pregnant? And the voters kind of looked at us like we were not speaking the same language as them, Mm -hmm. right? So we had to make this choice. And the question is, are we going to risk losing this battle? Because the polling for this thing was unbelievably razor thin the entire time. We ended up crushing them. And thank goodness for that. Go Colorado. Yes. But for the entire way through, it was within a point, within three points. And the last poll we did in October showed a margin of error race. And we were like, we might lose this thing. Hmm. Me and the campaign manager had to go like raise an insane amount of money for like the last two weeks to just like stay up on the air, right? But the question was, are we going to risk losing this thing because we don't want to use the wrong vocabulary or stigmatize a group of people or be exclusionary with our language? Or are we going to hold to those higher principles and say, we're going to be the people that we want to look in the mirror every day and we want to be the people using the right language in order to be inclusive and non-exclusionary and tell the truth about how the world actually works and risk losing this thing. It's a really hard question. It was so, a hard way. We discussed it over and over. I think it came up like every week. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's that's a long way of saying like, Measuring the backlash or anticipating the backlash, I think, absolutely has to be part of it. Because, yeah, you might go down swinging, and that and that might be a heroic way to end, and a great way to make a point, and a great way to advance the ball and actually make some real change. However, if it blows up on you when the forces of white supremacy or defenders of the status quo like end up like overcorrecting for what they mm-hmm. see as as a threat to their power, to their station, whatever. Do we end up in a worse place than when we started? I don't know. That's not a reason not to do something, certainly, but it is, I think, part of the calculation, right? Yeah. And I think it's a fundamental question of social change efforts. And, you know, I'm actually doing my PhD right now and I'm doing it on this exact topic of how our language winds up reinforcing uh, ideas really embedded in, in white Western Christian colonial paradigms that undermine our goals for change toward more inclusive uh, communities where mutual thriving is possible. But it is a it's a strategic uh, question. But I hear what you're saying, Lex, of and this is, I think, the the constant dilemma that it's easy to sit and have those debates as white folks, as people who are not the ones who are being continually uh, shoved aside, harmed, killed, 
Uh, we get to have fun in intellectual conversations mm-hmm. and there's very little risk involved in that, yeah. right? Whereas what Lex is talking about is an existential question. Am I going to survive this situation yeah. and should I just go down swinging? Those yeah. are completely reasonable questions. Here's my like not at all full-throated defense of incrementalism. It's the way, it's the only way in my lifetime, 37 years of it, that I've ever seen anything change. Mm-hmm. It's the only way. I've never seen a revolution. I've never been a party to uh, to a to a coup d'état. Uh, mm-hmm. There were there was an attempt the one time uh, while <laughs> that we one were time. watching yeah. a couple yeah. years that ago. One time, a couple yeah. years ago, didn't didn't work out for the bad guys. Thank goodness. But like, mm-hmm. okay, so we're we're not like a a revolution free experience here. Mm-hmm. There was there was the one time they tried to do that, it didn't work. But I think about this a lot because I think about policy. I think about how to change. I think about how to change quickly, but I also think about how to avoid backlash. And I think about how to like make things happen. The most deft, I would say skilled and probably successful sort of longer term incremental policy approach that worked that I've seen. Uh, LGBTQ rights in Colorado is like a great example of this, right? 1992, the voters through ballot initiative in Colorado, the same year they put fucking Tabor into the constitution mm. by the fucking way. And oh, with that's right. roughly the same margin by the way. So like same people voting for Tabor, probably voting against gay people, put this thing called amendment two in the state constitution that among other things basically said, if you're gay, you cannot have access to any state services at all whatsoever. Your marriage won't be recognized. You can't get health benefits. You can't get on public assistance, yada, yada, yada. It goes on and on. This marriage will not be recognized. You cannot. And it even prevented local governments like the state said Denver couldn't make laws recognizing civil unions or anything. Wow. Right. So you go all the way back to 1992, which is a long ass time ago already. 30 years. Really? And then you flash forward. (laughs) For for the amount of change that we've brought in that area. This is my point. Yeah. So you go from it basically being illegal to be gay by fiat of the voters, so a majority of people in the state voted to oppress a minority of people in the state, literally made a law that says you can't be you, to the point where we started making policy in like 2004, 2006 in the state of Colorado, where you had designated beneficiaries. So you could say, my same-sex partner will inherit my wealth. You can have two-parent adoption, a following session where a same-sex couple or an unmarried couple can just enter into a contract and adopt a kid. And as long as they meet all the criteria that are set out by the adoption laws of the state and the country, they can go through that process. It's still a big old pain in the ass, uh, mm-hmm. still to this day, mm-hmm. for same-gender couples versus mm-hmm. um, you know heteronormative couples, but it's better now. Uh, can my partner come visit me in the hospital? So on and so forth. So they made this series of laws every year, tiny, little, regulatory, mostly administrative changes to the way the state interacts with consenting adults who are in a relationship with one another. And by the time we were actually talking about civil unions or gay marriage, we basically had all the same rights. Hmm. Basically, LGBTQ folks and hetero uh, normative, whatever you want to call them, folks had the same rights on paper that they could enter into legal agreements with each other, get the tax benefits, get the relationship benefits, be able to adopt kids, be able to pass their uh, wealth and their property along, and also be able to have their uh, relationship recognized in some way, shape, or form by the state. So by the time we got to civil unions, it was like, well, I don't care what you call it. It's basically the same thing anyway. So go ahead, right? And the culture had shifted in that time. None of that happened by accident. Yeah. None of that happened because Mm -hmm. people woke up and met a bunch of gay people and Will and Grace was on TV and suddenly it was okay. (laughs) There were huge, well, right, huge, wealthy, (laughs) well-funded, horrifically, and still to this day, 
uh, powerful forces against all of that stuff. And there's plenty. And Colorado made a shit ton of progress. There's a lot of places going the other way right now. Right? There was uh, uh, a bill introduced in like Wyoming the other day that like made it illegal to say the word transgender, to made it illegal to like use pronouns, like this oh kind gosh. of shit. Right? Yeah. But I'm just talking about the sort of microcosm mm-hmm. of Colorado that went for. We were called the hate state rightfully so after that thing passed in 1992 the u.s supreme court actually ended up overturning it we still had the moniker but now it's pretty hard to argue with our like openly gay governor that this is the same state as it once was there are still hateful people here that is a long story about me seeing incrementalism working right in front of my face yeah yeah i just and i hear you and all of those things make so much sense to me right and i and i am able you know as a person who in all of my privilege of being in academia right like that makes sense to me and also i am a person who grew up in north philly in 29th and lehigh right which a lot of folks call the gutter and regardless of who's been in office on either side in my lifetime right i was born in 1988 it's almost almost been 35 years right not only have things stayed the same in that neighborhood, they get progressively worse. And so I hear this and it sounds good, right? And I can see it in Colorado and that's beautiful, right? And also I don't see it in the places from which I am from. I have not seen it. I have not seen any sort of incremental, fast, any sorts of change in that neighborhood. What I have Well, the seen change is, you've seen is that things have gotten worse, right? You're absolutely right. They've so gotten like, worse. There, There's more policing. There is a change. You know, right. like, I, it, like in the summer times, being in a neighborhood where there was a pop-up police station across the street from my school in an abandoned lot, not even from my school, excuse me, from my house in an abandoned lot, because the violence was so bad, but also the police violence was so bad, right? And so there's this, like, it's just this weird, like, I, I hear all this and I'm like, this, this for me becomes my departure in the political world because I'm like, it does not land where I grew up. It does not land in any sort of positive way. I've not seen it. I've seen things get progressively worse. And, and, and so that is my wrestle of like, what do I do? I'm glad people, you know, can be gay in Colorado. I'm glad to be a trans person in Colorado, right? Like one of the reasons why I've moved here is because it is more safe for me, right? And recognizing the privilege of that, right? Um, and so there's just so much tension in this for me. And I'm just like, this is a game that I choose not to be a part of because I can't wrestle with it. Oh, I totally sympathize with that. Yeah. And it like, trust me, like it's, I, you know, before I kind of understood my own privilege and before I, I like, you know, really kind of dealt with the advantages that I had that were sort of built into my life without knowing it. This is, I'll tell you something. I hope this doesn't piss you off too bad, but like the thing I carried in my head was like, well, like, you know, my grandparents were slaves, right? Like just one generation ago, like they were kidnapped and they were enslaved Mm -hmm. and half their family was murdered. And like, they, you know, luckily were liberated and came to America. My grandpa started a butcher shop and like, look at me, I'm great. So like what? But then it's like, Oh shit. Oh shit. I walk around looking like this. I walk around with white skin as a man in America and I don't wear a yarmulke and wear a big ass fucking star of David. Nobody fucking knows. And like, I can just hide in plain sight. Right. So like that, that was like the most shocking thing in the world to me where I was like, I'm just like the luckiest guy in the world. Maybe one of the smartest, 
Perhaps the hardest working. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Best dude, entire yeah. game was rigged for me from day fucking one. Right. And like, right. regardless of the fact that in one generation, that's the difference. In one generation, a white kid can go from slave to first gentleman of a congressional right. district. Right. But in one generation, black people cannot go from slave or in 20 generations. Right. Cannot go from that to even like with the same rights as everybody else walking around in the country. Right. So let's bring uh, religion into this, you know, since it's a fun party here and we're talking about all the hard things. Um, oh, we we'll added racism, too. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're like religion, <laughs> politics, racism, yep. sexism. There's a Holocaust in there. Uh, the Holocaust. There, yeah. Yeah, abortion. Um, anyway. A real okay, party. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so how do these different underlying ideologies or ideas about God shape our posture in these big debates? Man alive. This is why I love coming on this show. Yeah. Um, it just makes me like reckon with things I, I don't think about as much as I, I once did maybe and, and perhaps should. I think it's a real big problem that certain people's religion and or superstition and or intangible belief system, whatever you want to call it, are ever being imposed on other people. That is a mm. real problem for mm -hmm. me. There's that like South Park episode where it was like, it was the Presbyterians actually who got it right, right? So it's yeah. like, which... <laughs> I think that when it comes to ideas of liberation and freedom and oppression and, and incrementalism and change and all these things, if we are allowing one person's set of values or religious beliefs or whatever it is to rule over others, we're doing it very, very wrong. I think the hardest thing to do, but the most important thing to do is try and live in like as much of a pluralistic society as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. There's nothing there for me to talk mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. You don't want Hashem ruling over everybody either. I mean, like that's so that you want me to go grab Yahweh and like let's it's right. Yahweh or the highway. Is that how we want to do this thing? Like, I don't that's think exactly so. it right there. All right. Here's my pushback. Do it. I, I mean, I think that even our facts and reason are shaped by our assumptions about God and the way the world works. And, sure. and so, yes, I'm, I'm all about pluralism and finding ways to live together amidst the reality that we all see the world differently and to have some agreements about how we're going to live together, what we're going to do, what we're not going to do when one life in, intersects with another. We do have to continually ask like, where did these assumptions come from and how do they impact other people? Where do these truths and facts come from and how do they interact other people? And that's the conversation that I'm most interested in having. Where I come in is I think, and, and you're right. I mean, like you're, this is, you've kind of called bullshit on my argument. I'm not sure I have like a great like pushback, but I think that there's a difference between having religion, faith, uh, whatever intangibility kind of inform your argument versus it directing your argument or versus it being like the trump card. I hate using that word now I know. for an argument, yeah. where it, right? Where it's like, okay, we were having an interesting that, conversation yes, until absolutely. you started losing and then you threw God on the table and now there's nothing yeah. for me here. Yeah, right? As this is the ultimate truth. So you're wrong. Smite you all. Right, yeah. exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. Does not work. Stay away from yes. the lightning bolts. So. Okay. And question for you, Amanda. I guess I heard Ian saying something different. I, I heard Ian saying, in the times that we're talking about policy, it's not the time to bring up your religion. And you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, if we don't bring that up, that is affecting the decisions that we're making? Is that? No. Okay. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying religion is there. 
it's there regardless if we bring it up yeah it's like even if we if we name god or don't name god it's like the way you approach a conversation with the assumptions in your head and the foundations for your arguments and beliefs it's all the dna is there anyway exactly which i hate because it's a very good argument and it is a very good argument (laughs) there's no way to escape it there's no way to escape it yeah i mean i think that that's part of the reality i i'm i'm saying there is no way to escape it that it is there and so i mean i really question and this is a, a a bigger another episode like ian said but the possibility of the separation of church and state here's a big provocative statement because one religion is impossible to define um and so what is religion and how do you separate it and second it's not something that you can put on the shelf it's in your worldview it's in your assumptions about yourself and others the part that we can put on the shelf is exclusivity or that my religion is the only one way and everyone has to follow it. Um, I can believe that all I want as long as I'm not enforcing it with law or physical actions. But what I'm saying is that we cannot peel our ideas of God, religion, who we are, who others are, away from the way we move in the world personally or politically. I think there's like implicit and explicit like religiosity. And I think there's like exclusivity and specificity questions here that are interesting, right? Where it's like, it's like if I'm explicitly saying here and this chapter in verse says that my religion can't do this, therefore I'm imposing it on you. I think that's an easy no. Yeah. but if it's like to your point, if it's like something implicit, something like I mean, the majority of American culture is organized around Western and Christian principles, right? So to your, you can't divorce them at all. It's almost like saying like, all right, without talking about humanity, let's make some laws here. Kind of mm-hmm. hard to do, right? Mm-hmm. There's right. just too okay. much in there. It's like, all right, well, we're gonna what regulate the kingdom of elves? Like, I don't think we're gonna yeah. get very far. <laughs> in that conversation either but like it's it's a good point but i think like my line if you can draw one in this conversation is ex, is like the explicit nature of it where it's like okay you can be informed and inspired by it all you want that's fair game there's no way to untangle that where there is a place to draw a line i think is when you start quoting chapter and verse and try and put that in the statutes that's where it's to me it's a clear no at that point mm-hmm. yeah i guess where I'm, I'm still wrestling if as I'm saying, it's always present and we can't take it off the shelf. If that is true, if it's always present, how does that invite us to ask new questions? How does that invite us to ask in deeper ways how we live together? If it's more about how I'm impacting other people and how other people are impacting me, than it is about these are the core values that drive my view of the world. So here's a small, but I hope instructive, like exam, maybe not a counter example, just like an example. So I was a Capitol staffer uh, for a long time in the state house, but 2011 was like my first, like I was deputy communications director. So I was like in the staff or the speaker or the minority leader. We'd lost the majority the year before. And it had always been practiced or had been practiced for a while that on the floor of the state house, of representatives, there is a morning prayer that is optional. It happens before business. It happens before the gaveling in. I think you've done it a few times, yep, if I'm yep, not mistaken, I have, Amanda, I while I was yep. there as well, yeah. before we even knew each other. 
And that was to me a beautiful thing where it's like you had all these different faiths and all these denominations and all these different religions bringing their priests, their pastors, their imams, their rabbis, their, uh, you know, whomever else, right? Their bodhisattvas, everybody kind of came in and had their turn at it. And in fact, like when we were in the minority, we found out that it's not a majority decision. Anybody can bring any. So we brought like an atheist, like we brought all sorts of wacky people to like mess with the sort of evangelical. I think that's that were, when I was invited. Yes, indeed. <laughs> they were running the chamber at that point. They then moved the prayer to after the gavel. So the gavel did in and then, so the prayer was officially part of the business of the official business of the house. And as silly as it is, it's when this hammer hits this thing as to when it is or is not official business. So before the gavel, everybody was cool with it because it was voluntary and it was uh, it was optional and 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 it was uh, multi-denominational and it was all cool. These guys decided, no, that's not good enough for us. We want this to be part of the official business of the House of Representatives. So they put it after the gavel, which meant if you were a member, you had to be there. If you were a staffer, you had to be there. So that's, in my opinion, one of an example of the difference between sort of the implicit reality of religion existing and being everywhere or the imposition of a certain faith or religion and being put forcibly onto somebody. Mm-hmm. And then it moved back after the gavel as soon as Democrats yeah, were back. Yeah, and that, like, the, you know, before the gavel as soon as Democrats were back. Hedonists have been in charge ever since 2012. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's just been like that ever since. Yeah. yeah. Which, I mean, that brings us full circle back to how change happens. You know, in that one small, in the scheme of political uh, issues, whoever was in power got to make that decision right and it didn't go through the processes of the chambers and committees oh no there was like and, no vote and this votes. was straight so, yeah. up just like leadership rights of rules here it is yeah yeah so it's a real interesting like example of how our democracy slows things down and would bring something like that to different spaces compared to having one person who's in decision making power and uh, another interesting thing I've learned working with states across the country at their legislature is how that question of prayer uh, in the session is navigated in Georgia, for example. It is after the gavel that the prayer happens. Prayer also happens at every single committee hearing. Ooh, every really? committee. Yeah. The spiritual I, in the Right? Yeah, yeah. Every committee hearing has a prayer at the beginning. So, it's interesting that like how we navigate change in the United States, that there's these two different levels or actually way more than that. But there's the national processes and systems of navigating change. And then there's the state, local, county, city. Each of these have different processes and systems and underlying beliefs. And actually, I could have another history lesson on how those systems actually were designed similar to Christian Protestant uh, organizations and polity. That's the next uh, podcast. But anyway, all right, we could just keep going and going. Well, I and thought going. I was going to last... be really clever because you asked me back on the show. And, and one of the things I was going to say is, you know, Amanda um, and Lex too, uh, your show, it's called Complexified, but really it should be called Uncomplexified because like you get here. Nope, nope, nope. It's complex. Nope. We just made shit more complicated. Yes, exactly. <laughs> We're talking about for a full hour. We know less and I'm more confused than I was when more I got More questions. Here. So keep the title. You nailed it on the first try. Mission accomplished. Ignore me completely. 
as always, what a blast. Lex, it's so great to meet you. You this are was so great, Ian. Beyond a wonderful addition of the show. So I thank told you. you, right? Yeah, 100%. We're, lived up to the hype and then some. <laughs> thank you so much. We should so go get a drink or something sometimes if you ever. I'm have around. Time. Like I said, Colfax is just north, so I'll meet you halfway Sweet. between. Well, when it's not you. snowing, so maybe in May, because I tend to not go outside when it snows. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Uh, I can't wait till we have you on next time. I can't wait to be on and, and keep up the good work. The show is great. It's really fun to listen to. And, and thanks for having me back on it. It's always fun. Thanks, Ian. Thanks so much for joining us for resources and ideas, links to our TikTok and social media. Visit our website in the show notes. And if anything in this conversation inspired you, please share it with a friend. That's the very best way to support us. Complexified is presented by the Institute for Religion, Politics, and Culture at ILIF School of Theology. Working hard behind the scenes are our engineer, Andrew Perella, producer Elaine Appleton-Grant, Tina Basir, and the rest of the crew at Podcast Allies. I'm Amanda Henderson. And I'm Lex Dunbar.